0: The first two speakers have got the title for their talks, Success Stories. Um, I think uh, success can come by degrees and in very different ways, um, and of course they can talk to you more about the kinds of successes they've had and what are the initiatives that have helped them to get to that point. It's my pleasure indeed to introduce to you uh, Dr Anne Polina. Ann is amongst other things, a very long personal friend of mine and a person who I admire very much for her intelligence and her tenacity and her capacity to get things done. Anne is a representative of the Nikanamangala people from the Kimberley. They've been involved in various campaigns around protection of country and I think the best thing for me is to let Anne speak for herself. Thank you so much, Anne.
1: Good morning, my name is Anne Polina. I'm a traditional custodian from the Fitzroy River. I said in my language that it's good morning and good to be here and I feel that it's a good feeling in my spirit to be here on Garigal land. Um, 40 minutes, I think what Vicky's saying is that I think for many of us leaders, you know, this is exhausting work. And once you put your hand up to be a leader, whatever that definition is, there's so much that we need to be doing on country. And um, it is very, very exhausting work. And um, what I like to do is normally I use film because a lot of the time the old people can't come with us. But it also brings you into country... And, um, you know, this concept around globalisation and where Indigenous people fit, not only in Australia but internationally, is is something that I think we're still grappling with. So um, before I start, um, I want to acknowledge my country and the Kimberleys. Um, There's a little five-minute promo that my niece has developed called Big Spirit Country. And I think one of the things that we need to understand as Australians is that this is a big spirit country. The whole of Australia is a fantastic space. Whether you go to the river, the sea, the desert, the hill country, it's an amazing landscape. Um, There's a conservation group called Pew, and they wrote an amazing report. And there's things like, you know, the Great Barrier Reef and the fight that Adani's having and Uluru and Kakadu and the Kimberleys. And it just seems to be an all-out attack on not just Aboriginal Australians but Australians in general. And I think one of the things about this journey is that what we're learning, what I've learned as a leader, is that we can't be in this fight on our own. We need fellow Australians. And I think when you look at what works around the country, it's collaboration. We need our fellow Australians standing side by side with us. We need other Aboriginal leaders standing with us, telling our stories, sharing our stories. So for me, um, I'll just put Big Spirit Country on. Mitch Torres is my niece... She's made this as a five-minute promo because we're not just talking about problems. We've actually got solutions to globalisation. We've actually got things that we can use from country, the cultural capital, the knowledge we have as, you know, as custodians on country. A couple of weeks ago, I was in Paris on the same panel with Victoria. And, um, you know, I was... T- one of the things, you know, um, I say is that I'm also a scientist, a social scientist and a biophysical scientist... But at the end of the day, I'm a traditional custodian and I'm standing for country because I believe in the values of country and I believe in the, the leaders who have gone before me and the leaders who will come after me. So um, I'll just put big spirit country on, one, just to bring you into the Kimberleys, but also to say that we are very clear that as leaders we don't, we're not just looking at globalisation as a problem we've actually got very important solutions that we can work with to create diverse economies. And some of you may have heard the concept culture conservation economy in terms of looking at our big landscapes and saying that country and culture is actually something that is very missing in the world. When you travel to Paris or Japan or whatever, you can see that people are squashed into a defined space. And when you come to big landscapes, there's something therapeutic about it. And, um, you know, people say, well, what do you do to sort of keep you strong? I said, well, part of my resilience is I know that when I'm exhausted and I'm tired, and I'll say this in the film as well, is that, you know, this is really, really hard work. What we're doing is really hard work, and we could not do this if we don't keep some form of resilience. How do we stay strong? And for me, what keeps me strong is country. And when I am exhausted, I go back and I lay on the ground near the billabong, and I can feel the energy of the country coming through me and rejuvenating me. So it's this connection to country. It's connection to big landscape, but it's also connection human to human, Because as traditional, I I don't call myself a traditional owner. I call myself a traditional custodian. And I make that distinction because I don't own the land. The land owns me. So I've sort of come away from that that concept. And I know that people's um, language is very powerful and how people use language is up to them. But over my journey in the last 10 years, I realised that, no, I'm not a traditional owner. I'm a traditional custodian because the land owns me. I came from a family of no-talk, only work, And in the last 10 years, I've had to learn to talk. So I think sometimes people think that I can now talk underwater. So if someone can manage the time... I'm struggling to see how I'm going to stand here for 40 minutes. But, um, yeah, that's just a little insight into the Kimberleys, into my country, into our country, Australia. And as I said earlier, you know, the the whole of Australia is an amazing landscape. Um, And when I was in Paris a couple of weeks ago, I went there for a science... Conference in regards to how do we get science to look at climate change. And one of the positions I've put is that unless you're engaging with the first people of the lands who know and who have adapted to climate change, then we, in terms of traditional knowledge, must be seen as Indigenous science because this is knowledge that's been generated over thousands and thousands and thousands of years of lived experience. What the old people have taught me is look for the signs up in the sky, down in the ground. Look how the country is changing. So it's very important for researchers and scientists to be fully aware that if we're going to be addressing these so-called wicked problems, whether it's climate change or globalisation or whatever else, unless Indigenous people are part of that conversation, and not just part of the conversation but part of the decision-making, then there's always going to be gaps in terms of the knowledge-making that we are trying to generate human to human. So I think that's a very important point, is to recognise that traditional ecological knowledge is indigenous science, and that we are reading the country, and we constantly are reading the country. So in my language, we have a word called bugaragara. There's no such thing as a dream time, because that sounds a bit of a fantasy. But bugaragara means the past, the present, and the future, fused into this moment in time in which we must act. And so that's one of the impetus that drives me. So one of the things, as I said earlier, I made a very clear distinction that I'm not a traditional owner, I'm a traditional custodian. I also want to make the distinction that I'm not an activist, I'm an actionist. I don't want to be an activist for activist's sake. I want to create sustainable change and sustainable life. And sustainable life is different to sustainable development. So one of the things, as I said, is that being very clear about defining who I am, I also want to make it very clear that I don't speak for anybody else. I stand here as a traditional custodian, but I'm standing here speaking about my lived experience and my journey. So I want to make it clear that I'm not speaking for anybody else, that I'm speaking as someone who's been through this journey and these are my lived experience. I also want to make the point that I'm not a protester, I'm a protector for country. So that's a very important distinction as well. I, I, you know, I think there's a very important role for protesters, but I'm a protector for country. Um, one of the things I said is, um, for me in the film, what I said was, the land, the law is in the land. It's not in man. And I think that's one of the distinctions that I like to make. Is that over the last 20 years, what I've seen is people taking on the role of being an elder or law boss or law this or law that. The law is in the land and if we read country and we understand country and if we have a connection to country, we know that that is true and it's intergenerational. Um, I also want to say that um, for me, I have a real serious problem with native title, not that um, native title in the concept of what native title means, but I have a problem with the way the act the law is constructed I believe that native title law has become an instrument of oppression that it's a way of dividing Aboriginal people between each other as well as amongst the nation and I think when I look at uh, native title, as I said um, it took 18 years for my people to get native title, many people died along the way but it's only now that we're starting to unpack native title and we are river people which means I belong to the river the Fitzroy River, the Matawara. Our creation story talks about how our ancestor Winyumbu walked along the river and made the river and all of these sorts of things and then we are now just starting to unpack our native title and what we've found is that our native title rights in terms of water rights have been totally usurped And I think that's a really interesting challenge in terms of where development is going with the Kimberley region. So for me, as I say, I look at native title and I've been part of that journey, but there's been quite a lot of division that native title has caused within our own people. Um, And I find it... I I still struggle with it. You know, somebody with a PhD and three masters and doing another PhD, and I'm still trying to understand what does that law actually mean on the ground? For Aboriginal people. So I make it very clear that you know, I'm a director of our native title prescribed body corporate but um, I'm as a leader sitting in that um, directorship I'm still trying to unpack what does our native title decision actually mean on the ground. Where did that come from in terms of interpretation of the law from Koki Mabo to the Kimberleys? How are these sorts of things actually panning out on the ground? Um, why we defend country That's a really interesting question Um, and what brought me into this very public space. I mean, I live on the Fitzroy River. I also live in Broome Um, and over the last 10 years I've been building quite a large knowledge hub, um, you know, infrastructure and buildings and and trying to create a space where people from all over the world can come to the Fitzroy River, can come to country and learn about the country and understand what does all of this mean A little earlier I talked about the culture conservation economy where I see culture and conservation as possibly a great way to be able to create enterprise, to create opportunities for people. Now going back to why defend country, I don't know how many of you in the room heard about James Price Point and what was happening in the Kimberley. But James Price Point, um, known to us as a place called Walmadan. It's a very special place and a couple of, up till about a year or so ago it was on the international um, agenda to become the largest LNG precinct in the world. It was going to be bigger than Qatar, $46 billion project. And um, when it came, you know, a, a lot of people said, basically, $46 billion project, that's going to go ahead. Doesn't matter what you blackfellas say, it's going to go ahead and that's the whole story. And I hadn't really taken too much notice of James Price Point. It's 60 kilometres from Broome. And so, basically, as I say, I'm a traditional custodian from the Fitzroy River, but I was born in Broome, and Broome's my home, and I will defend it till, you know, my last breath. But I'd been working out on the river, and I made a film, and I came in, and we showed this film, and there was an old white guy in there, and he'd seen the film, and he came up to me, and he says and it's all, he's got Parkinson's, and it's all over, it's too hard, we can't do anything. And I also have a concept in my nation where we call waiting time. Sometimes people want to answer just like that, but for a lot of the old people, they like to take the information on, think about it, dream about it, talk about it, and then maybe come back with a solution. So when Dave said to me, it's all over and, you know, broom's gone and this industrialization's coming and don't worry, you're not going to be able to do anything, I, I kind of thought, well, I won't give him a response just yet. I, I need to think about it and I need to dream about it because my energy had been focused on the river. And um, then I sort of came back and I started to watch what was happening in my hometown. And it was quite... It was very sad. It was... Um, there was lots of emotions because obviously, you know, one of the things that sometimes people expect is that Aboriginal people or blackfellas, we all got to have the same idea and we all got to agree and we all got to be, yes, this is the way it's going. But we're an extremely diverse group. We've got different ideas. We've got different views in terms of how our world should be shaped. And what I saw happening in Broome was very um, distressing. Many of the families, and I think as a researcher or just somebody, you know, sort of trying to make sense of this, I think one of the things people don't really understand is the collateral damage on Aboriginal people. It destroys families, these sorts of fights. It destroys communities. It destroys long-term relationships. You know, we've got... um, After the James Price point scenario, which I'll go back to, we've got families that... Fathers who won't talk to their sons, brothers who hate brothers sisters who won't talk to families, and it's created real divisiveness. And I think what I want to go back to is um, part of my doctoral study was looking at the impact of colonisation intergenerationally on my nation, looking at how governments have actually constructed policies and laws to oppress Indigenous people. And part of what grounded my study was a work by Paulo Freire looking at the impact of colonisation looking at the instruments of oppression in terms of when we become invaded, what are the strategies, divide and conquer, manipulation, conquest, cultural invasion, conflict. And I just saw all this reoccurring with the James Price Point saga. And um, I think one of the strategies of the corporations um, is that they want to make you feel like you've lost before you start. And so there was a real active strategy by the corporations, by governments, local government and the state and the federal government to make these sorts of stories sort of end before they start. And I, I looked at the James Price point scenario and I thought, oh, I need to come back here because this is my home that I was defending. Broom's my home. Even though I'm not a traditional owner from the Walmadan area, Broome was my home and I believe that I had not just a right, but a responsibility to defend it. So I I got on board with the James Price Point um, scenario and I started to look at what was actually happening in that scenario. And what I found was with these big projects, as I said earlier... It can't just be Aboriginal people standing to defend country. We need to have a relationship with our fellow Australians. We need to have serious collaboration whereby we can work with other people, multiple strategies. So when I quickly look back and see, well, what worked with the James Price scenario? Because it didn't happen. There was a win-win. Shell has developed a floating LNG hub. It's the first in the world. So they're still drawing the gas from the Browse Basin, but... Um, it's not going to destroy that cultural landscape, that beautiful country of Wamadan, that amazing place. Um, And so how that came about was that there were multiple strategies. There was citizen science. There was protesters. There were people who locked on. There were people that when the state government brought up hundreds of police to um, escort the companies onto country, there were people standing for country. I think one of the other things about the James Price point scenario was that more Australians became aware of it as well because we had conservation groups like um, the Wilderness Society... um you know, the, the Wilderness Society, ACF, all of these conservation groups—they got behind it as well. And so, part of that was strategically using a national and a regional and a, a statewide campaign, so people got to know and hear where is James Price Point, where is this place called Wamadan. So, I think that's really important in terms of having um, having a wide range of uh, strategies that we can try and address these, um, you know, issues on. Most importantly, I think there was legal action and the ramifications. One of our um, senior, the law boss, who who was standing up for James Price Point, as I said, he died, Um, and a lot of people say, oh, you know, he would have died anyway, but the stress that leaders are under, it's it's amazing um, that we're still sort of standing. Um, So, you know, um, Joe was able to get fantastic support to be able to mount a very big legal campaign to look at that. And, you know, the Supreme Court actually found it in favour of what we were um, standing for in terms of, you know, call it what you may, but at the end of the day, it's corruption in government. It's collusion. It's the way governments continue to manipulate the whole story. So um, I think that's very, very important. The other thing, as I said, I I referred a little earlier to... um, My construct that native title, not native title in the concept, but native title as an act of law, um, I find it very oppressive. And it wasn't until I made connection with environmental groups that I realised that we could use environmental law to be able to defend country. Because one of the things that we're talking about is a a concept called earth jurisprudence, that the earth has rights, that country has rights, and that we as as the custodians of country need to respect and honour that, So unless I had made contact with green groups, I would never have found out about environmental law and the ability to use that because one of the big things with native title is we have no power of veto and so we we don't have a say in terms of projects are coming on country. We don't want it. Um, The other thing I want to make a clear delineation is um, that governments are ignoring science. They're ignoring the research. And so it's really difficult to get the stories out there and to map what is actually going on. One, to start with a baseline, because the native title process is very quick. Um, I'm not quantitative, so numbers aren't my thing, but a lot of times we have about 60 days to come up with some sort of agreement with these companies. There's no time to do the science. There's no time to understand the multiple values. There's very little time to be able to collect... Uh, expert witness statement. So from that perspective, as I said, I find native title law to be very soft. And so for me, standing up and defending country, I've relied a lot more on environmental law. Um, and as I said, as a traditional custodian, we are standing up defending. I'm standing up defending country, not just for Aboriginal people, but because there are Australians that are standing up with us. The other important thing is that we are standing up for non-humans. We're standing for the birds, for the trees, for the river because they don't have a voice. So as part of our role of our defending country is us having an understanding that we have a relationship with and a responsibility for non-human beings. So it's very, very important and people say, well, how does that work? And I know it works because it is, as I say, a lived experience. So I just quickly, sometimes we go to the river to fish and the old people will look up and they'll be talking and I'm going, what's happening? And they said, oh, we're just talking... A couple of weeks ago we we're talking to the birds and I said oh yeah and what have the birds said they said to me we've ta- the birds have said to us don't worry about fishing today if we walk 50 yards down the river we'll see that somebody has left a very big mess and we're not going to allow the fish to be caught today until that mess is cleaned up and I go okay because a lot of this is believing so we walk 50 yards and there's a huge mess and We have a connection to country, and this is intergenerational. And as I said, the past, the present, and the future fused into this moment in time. And so, you know, it's very important to understand that Indigenous people come with quite a wealth of knowledge and lived experience to be able to share of how we're going to, you know, enter into and engage with globalisation and modernity. Um, One of the things is, as I said... Part of the James Price Point scenario was I did something, which is now four years later, I joined local government and I became a local government councillor. And for me, um, that was something I never, ever wanted to do in my life. I actually despised local government. When I was a young person, my father came from West Timor And in about 1971, we had our home and our businesses totally uh, confiscated by the uh, the local government with no compensation. And, uh, you know, that sort of stayed with me all my life and I thought, you know, these people have robbed our family of our future and our home and I never want anything to do with local government. But when this came about the James Price Point scenario, there was a real need for someone to get on local government and to run with a mandate of for the people, onto local government, and I, I put my hand up. And um, it's been a learning curve. My term runs out in October. And along the way, what I found with that journey was that the state government has developed planning reform agenda. So they've been able to change planning laws that impact directly on local government in terms of these big projects. Um, one of the things they did in the Kimberley and with James Price Point. Um, is that they created a new planning law called an improvement plan and an improvement scheme. And what that does was it draws a line around that whole James Price Point uh, precinct, it takes it out of control of local government and it gives control for that land to the state. And so that's a legislation... That's a, a, a term that I'm showing you. So even though we were, I was on local government... We had no say in regards to what was going to happen with James Price Point. That is still on the agenda. I just got an email last night to say that our council was voting on another item around the improvement plan and the improvement scheme. Um, the state has, in that time, been able to create new laws. Our Premier was, was and probably still is the Minister for State Development. And so all of these things tie up. So one of the things, as I said, you have to understand that what we're talking about, to some extent, is the strategies of war. How do we combat these big fights? What are the strategies that government will use? What are the strategies that corporations will use? And what we find in Western Australia is that our state government has actually created parliamentary acts which enshrine the rights of the corporation over the rights of people and country. So, you know, we need to unpack these things. We need to be able to document them. We need to be able to understand them. So, you know, it was a very interesting um, scenario. As I said, it's multiple strategies. It's, you know, social media. Social media was an amazing platform to be able to take the James Price point scenario nationally and internationally. It was a way of bringing people to country to act as citizen scientists. So when Woodside would bring a scientist in for maybe a couple of weeks citizen science came and sat on country for six to nine months. When the James Bryce Point scenario, Woodside said that it wasn't a very significant place for Wales, Wales... what they did was they came and saw that it was an a, extremely, you know, important place. They were able to map this journey of the whales and how long they stayed and what, that it was a main, amazing birthing grounds. They were able to find endangered species like bilbies, all of these sorts of things. So citizen science is very important. Social media is very important. Um, having people from diverse backgrounds is very important. One of the things um, that I didn't say was in the Kimberley, before invasion we had a law called the Wunan. And that was a law that travelled from what we call the sunrise country to the sundown country, which is James Price Point, through the desert into Walpuri country, up through Uluru, Kakadu and back to the Kimberley. So it was a huge cultural block where we used for trade, for ceremony, but it was a law of coexistence, a law of co-management, a law which united people in diversity. Everyone had their own patch, which they knew and took care of, and and uh, you know, as I said, the law was in the land. They understood the law, but th- this was a concept that was created and is still in the land and still held by many senior people. And I think this is a concept that I'm trying to go back to in terms of modern modernity. So I'll pick that point up again. But um, basically, it, it's it's a real hard it's real hard slog, and. Um, it's an important journey to recognise that, you know, it's wonderful. Like I said to Vicky, what are we doing here? And I think sometimes it's just rejuvenating and it also is resilience building to see other leaders that I've met in my journey, to see Adrian, to see, you know, um, Clayton and the work that he's doing. But what I want to say is it seems that we in this country, in Australia, this fair go for all, a lucky country for some, is that I think that we've actually gone backwards when I look at Aboriginal rights, when I look at what's happening around this nation, I think we've actually regressed. And um, it's quite sad, really, but um, I think one of the things that, you know, I look around and I see that there's quite a lot of international covenants around the world in terms of, you know, the rights of Indigenous people and how does that play out. One, it's not domesticated in Australian law, so does that actually hold up in terms of some of these challenges? And as I say, the two principles that I really base a lot of my work on is human rights and the rights of the environment. So that's been really critical. So uh, in terms of this, basically what I want to say is that we can't ignore science, we can't ignore research, and when I talk about science, I'm talking about traditional ecological knowledge, um, that these these stories need to be documented. like. I think it's really important to look at these as case study scenarios that can impact and reflect one on each other in terms of what worked, what didn't work. So when people are dealing with Adani and Great Barrier Reef, they can, maybe we can share some learnings. What, what I'm seeing now is that not only is there an attack on Indigenous people in this country, but there's also an attack on those people that help to defend country with us the environmental defenders' offers around the country, that's really been cut back. A lot of the conservation groups are losing, possibly losing their deductible gift recipient status. So what we're seeing in this country is, I think, a real regress in terms of rights of people, rights of the land, and I think it's it's really important. And quickly, just before I finish, what I'm saying is that I believe that we're not, def- not just defending country because of the mining um, interests, but that we're defending country because we believe in opportunities for diverse economies. So this culture conservation economy that I'm talking about can um, be uh, factored into things like global geoparks, um, those sorts of things where we sit cultural values alongside of earth science and that we showcase these big landscapes to the world and our knowledge that we have held and continue to hold. I think it's um, important that that we do have the opportunity for legal representation. And most of the lawyers that have stood with the Indigenous People Defending Country have done um, this sort of defence, usually on a pro bono basis, but these court cases can drag out and and go and extend over years and years. So there needs to be a way to be able to mobilise legal um, support for these cases because um, I'm not sure if any of you in the room are aware, but there's, when we talk about earth jurisprudence or the earth having rights, there's an international lawyer based in the UK called Polly Higgins, and she's trying to create a law called Ecoside that she's, she's been working on for many, many years, and she's taken to the international court arena. But Ecoside is about the destruction of these large landscapes. So, you know, there are people working in these spaces... Um, And I think in terms of what can researchers do, I think it's very important to be able to go in and understand the process, the impacts and the outcomes of these stories and that how can we learn from these stories and to be able to share them not just um, with Australians but internationally. So, you know, I stand here because I believe in hope and I believe that there is a future And I think one of the things that we're seeing in this country is that it's not just the erosion of rights for Aboriginal people. I think it's the erosion of rights for all Australians. And I think what really drives me to defend country is my belief in the protection of land, water, food and energy security. And sitting equal to that is a collaboration with Indigenous people and other leaders. So um, thank you, Vicky, for the opportunity to come. I hope that we're going to have an opportunity to have questions a bit later But I'm really keen to hear the stories of the other leaders and um, to take a little bit of that hope back because it is a hard journey. Um, It's an extremely emotional journey, but I think these are stories that we need to tell because these are stories of humanity and these are the stories that impact on how we're addressing globalisation. Most of the profits that are generated out of these projects, 80% of the profits are going overseas. Very little of it is staying in this country. So I think it's about us working together, human to human, and building a relationship forward because this is a lucky country, it's an amazing country and I think Indigenous leaders that are coming on after me have got wonderful stories to tell and I think these stories need to be documented so that we can learn from these lessons. So, Kali thank you.
0: We have five minutes for questions or comments from the floor.
1: Thank you, Anne. Um, I'm Jenny from UTS. Um, I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on um, post-James Price point, if I could put it in that framework... In terms of, like, um, having spent a bit of time there over the recent years too, um, the current move by the Barnett government to remove and close down remote communities...